0: it's monday december 12th 2022 i'm jackson bird today a big nuclear fusion announcement is coming in the morning but just how big will it really be plus a collection of disappearing and extinct sounds and how the climate emergency is coming for one trendy fruit here's some cool stuff for your ride home The U.S. Department of Energy is scheduled to hold a media briefing tomorrow morning, Tuesday the 13th, at 10 a.m. Eastern to report on a, quote, major scientific breakthrough. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm will be joined by officials from the National Security Administration and Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. While officials from the lab are remaining tight-lipped and the Department of Energy told Reuters they have no information ahead of the briefing, scientists have been talking amongst themselves and the Financial Times was able to get the scoop from a few anonymous sources. The major scientific breakthrough is expected to be that the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory achieved a significant milestone in nuclear fusion, a net energy gain. More energy was produced by the reaction than it took to cause it. A simple concept in summation, but one which physicists have been chasing since the 1950s. Plasma physicist and author Dr. Arthur Terrell told the Financial Times, quote, If this is confirmed, we are witnessing a moment of history. Scientists have struggled to show that fusion can release more energy than is put in since the 1950s, and the researchers at Lawrence Livermore seem to have finally and absolutely smashed this decades-old goal. End quote. But don't start celebrating just yet. Nuclear fusion announcements tend to have a bit of a boy who called wolf air to them. Now, while if true, this would be huge, it doesn't mean we are anywhere close to nuclear fusion taking over for all other forms of energy and saving us from the climate emergency. If that were to ever happen, even just partially, it will be a decade or more likely decades from now before it does. But let's back up. I've discussed other nuclear fusion achievements over the past few years, because even though it can be the butt of the joke for always being just a decade away, the past few years have seen a number of actually significant breakthroughs that have surprised even its critics. And like those other times, I am going to quote extra readily here because I barely understand nuclear fusion myself. So here's a good summary from Reuters, quote, Fusion energy, the process that powers the sun and stars that one day could provide a cheap source of electricity, works when nuclei of two atoms are subjected to extreme heat of 100 million degrees Celsius or higher, leading them to fuse into a new, larger atom, giving off enormous amounts of energy. But the process consumes vast amounts of energy. And the trick has been to make the process self-sustaining and to get more energy out than goes in and to do so continuously instead of brief moments. If fusion is commercialized, which backers say could happen in a decade or more, it would have additional benefits, including the generation of virtually carbon-free electricity, which could help in the fight against climate change without the amounts of radioactive nuclear waste that today's fission reactors produce. Running an electric power plant off fusion presents tough hurdles, however, such as how to contain the heat economically and to keep lasers firing consistently. Other methods of fusion use magnets instead of lasers end quote. Right, instead of the giant donut-shaped reactors and magnetic fields in use elsewhere, the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory's inertial confinement fusion process uses 192 enormous lasers that fire all together at a tiny metal cylinder, which, quoting the New York Times, heated to some 5.4 million degrees Fahrenheit, vaporizes, generating an implosion of x-rays, which in turn heats and compresses a BB-sized pellet of frozen deuterium. And tritium, two heavier forms of hydrogen. The implosion fuses the hydrogen into helium, creating fusion. End quote. Now, according to the anonymous sources who spoke to the Financial Times, the reaction being announced tomorrow delivered 2.1 megajoules of energy from the lasers and produced 2.5 megajoules of energy. That would be the highly sought-after and crucial net gain. Though, lab officials are not yet confirming those numbers, telling the press that analyses are still being conducted and it would be inaccurate to publish any numbers yet. So we will have to listen out for the announcement at tomorrow's press briefing to get the final numbers. But even if those numbers, or hey, maybe even more impressive ones, are accurate, there are still a lot of caveats here. Energy and commodities columnist at Bloomberg, Javier Blas, pointed out in a thread on Twitter that those numbers likely refer to the energy delivered by the lasers for the reaction and do not include all of the energy needed for the lasers to charge before the reaction. Blass wrote, quote, due to inefficiencies, the lasers consume about 330 megajoules to charge, with the energy stored in 3,840 high-voltage capacitors for 60 seconds before being released in a 400 microsecond burst, end quote. Kenneth Chang elaborated in the New York Times, quote, the lab's lasers are extremely inefficient, meaning only a small fraction of the energy used to power the lasers actually makes it to the beams themselves. More modern technology like solid-state lasers would be more efficient, but still far from 100% fusion. For this to be practical, the fusion energy output must be at least several times greater than that of the incoming lasers, end quote. And that practicality is a huge point. This breakthrough may indeed be a huge one, but even if it is, there are a lot of obstacles to overcome before fusion power could be any kind of reliable or widespread source of energy. As Blast points out, these current lasers can only, at best, fire once a day. For commerciality, they would need to fire several times per second. End quote. And from the Washington Post, quote, engineers have yet to develop machinery capable of affordably turning that reaction into electricity that can be practically deployed to power the grid. Building devices that are large enough to create fusion power at scale, scientists say, would require materials that are extraordinarily difficult to produce. At the same time, the reaction creates neutrons that put a tremendous amount of stress on the equipment creating it, such that it can get destroyed in the process, end quote. The dream of nuclear fusion is a beautiful one. When you explain the possibilities of it, it can be easy for people to cling on to hope for a future powered by fusion. And given how difficult it is to understand for the general public, myself included, any headlines touting major breakthroughs can often seem a lot more incredible than the reality, even if they are still crucial and significant ones. And there is reason to be at least a little skeptical about this one, beyond just the practical constraints about what this actually means. As Blass put it, quote, I'm skeptical of surprisingly well-timed announcements by budget-starved laboratories about breakthroughs for technologies decades away, end quote. And the Washington Post noted, quote, it's likely to be touted by the Biden administration as an affirmation of a massive investment by the government over the years, end quote. And more from the Financial Times, quote, The U.S. breakthrough comes as the world wrestles with high energy prices and the need to rapidly move away from burning fossil fuels to stop average global temperatures reaching dangerous levels. Through the Inflation Reduction Act, the Biden administration is plowing almost $370 billion into new subsidies for low-carbon energy in an effort to slash emissions and win a global race for next-generation clean tech. The 3.5 billion dollar National Ignition Facility at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California was primarily designed to test nuclear weapons by simulating explosions, but has since been used to advance fusion energy research. It came the closest in the world to net energy gain last year when it produced 1.37 megajoules from a fusion reaction, which was about 70% of the energy in the lasers on that occasion," end quote. According to the Washington Post, the Biden administration has been prioritizing fusion energy research in its climate and energy agenda, including being at the top of the list for tens of billions of dollars in subsidies and grants authorized through the climate package in the Inflation Reduction Act. So showing that a US lab, a federally funded one, may have made the most significant breakthrough in nuclear fusion yet will be a huge vote of confidence in that budget allocation. And it's not like we shouldn't be investing in nuclear fusion, but like everything with the climate emergency, we've hit the point where we kind of have to do a little of everything. Fusion especially is one that we just can't guarantee will be ready on any sort of timeline that works with how fast the climate emergency is accelerating. Justine Kalma at The Verge echoed my general sentiment, quote, It's still looking very unlikely that we'll be able to count on fusion energy in time to dig us out of a climate crisis. But this is Cool science and one can dream, end quote. If you want to travel the world or travel back in time, citiesandmemory.com has you covered. Rusty Blazanoff over at Boing Boing recently featured the Obsolete Sounds collection from the ongoing sound project Cities and Memory. Obsolete Sounds, they say, is the world's biggest collection of disappearing and extinct sounds. On the site, you can listen to over 150 audio clips of things like a Super 8 camera, an Apple iBook Duo, a pocket watch being wound, An old elevator, various typewriters, and even a shepherd singing to his sheep. Every sound is really two sounds. You get the field recording from a volunteer artist, as well as a reimagining that that artist composed using the sound. Some of them are melodious, some are more ambient... And as the obsolete sounds website says, quote, the sounds of the world are changing faster now than at any stage in human history. And the lifespan of sounds is shorter than it's ever been before. Sounds that only came into existence a few years ago are already disappearing. Obsolete Sounds is designed to draw attention to the world's disappearing soundscapes, to highlight those sounds that are worth preserving because they form a part of our collective cultural heritage, and to help us think about how to save those sounds before it's too late, end quote. The project was done in partnership with Conserve the Sound, a German organization with a similar initiative. The main organizer of Obsolete Sounds, however, is Cities in Memory, and they are very cool. Cities in Memory catalogs sounds from cities all around the world, from more than 110 countries. They currently have over 5,000 sounds submitted by over 1,000 artists. You can check out a map on their website, which covers most of the globe, and click on any pin where you'll hear a field recording from that city, as well as another one of those reimagined sounds, which, quote, presents that place in time as somewhere else, somewhere new end quote, and as the website says, the sounds are as diverse as, quote, the hubbub of Grand Central Station, traditional fishing songs on Lake Turkana, the sound of computer data centers in Birmingham, spiritual temple chanting in New Taipei City, or the hum of the vaporetto engines in Venice end quote. You can explore the map and tune out to the ambient noise as if you're in a city you once lived in or wish to one day visit, or you can contribute sounds from your own city or volunteer to create a reimagining from one of their existing field recordings. All the info about different ways to get involved are on the Cities and Memory website, link in the show notes. Seems like a really cool ongoing project, but also mostly just a really cool repository of sounds to explore and enjoy. Back in September, I told you all about the pawpaw, a green fruit that some describe as a cross between a mango and a banana. It's been growing in popularity over the last several years as more restaurants adopt its interesting taste and texture into more creative dishes, and more and more festivals are organized to celebrate America's largest edible native fruit. But the pawpaw may be in danger. While some have thought that the warming global temperatures could make pawpaws one of the crops more suitable for growing in the future, plant biologists at the University of Georgia have recently found that the changes are happening too quickly, and the wild plants may be unable to adapt. One key reason for that is when we talk about rising global temperatures, that doesn't just mean day-to-day weather is getting hotter everywhere, but rather causing more extreme temperatures on either end and more extreme weather conditions. While pawpaws are one of the many plants flowering earlier in the spring due to warming temperatures, they're also experiencing crop loss when hard freezes come amidst fluctuating spring weather. More extreme droughts and heavier rainfall doesn't help their outlook. Quoting Gizmodo, Plants have a wide range of strategies for adapting to climate change, from developing drought resistance to migrating to new areas, thanks to pollinators and animals that disperse their seeds. But these adaptations take time, and establishing new populations is especially difficult for the pawpaw, whose pollinators—flies, beetles, opossums, foxes, and raccoons—don't typically travel long distances. The University of Georgia researchers also found that because of low genetic diversity, it's not clear whether the pawpaws that do manage to establish themselves elsewhere will have the same kind and quality of edible fruits as the ones we know today. A 2015 report from the U.S. Forest Service came to a similar conclusion. Pawpaws need a period of cold for their seeds to germinate in the spring. Toward the southern end of their range, they likely won't get that as temperatures rise. In most places, though, growers expect the plants to thaw, blossom, and ripen earlier in the year, requiring them to plan out their harvest times accordingly, end quote. Growers can do their best to mitigate the situation with their crops, and researchers are working on breeding new varieties of the fruit that will be able to adapt better. But foragers, who for the moment make up a large portion of people who harvest and enjoy the fruit, it's a whole thing and part of what's making the pawpaw trendy in the local food movement, foragers will probably have the most trouble because all these weather changes are going to affect the lonely pawpaws trying to make it out in the wild without the help of farmers and scientists. And of course, if there are less pawpaws to go around and more people wanting them, I mean, it's not like pawpaws are going extinct right away. In fact, they probably never will in our, you know, conceivable future. One pawpaw grower, Chris Chmiel, told Gizmodo that they will probably adapt better to climate change than we do. But there could be some growing pains as the fruit continues to trend up and reacts poorly to some of the current effects of our changing climates. For a fruit that is already so weird, I mean, almost everyone describes the taste and texture slightly differently, I wonder how much weirder it could get if it does adapt in any measurable ways over the coming years. Well, that is going to be it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.